0: I was reminded again this week that days go by and weeks go by and months and years go by, and and some memories that seem to be not that far ago are actually a little ways behind me. In the year 1994, filmgoers were treated uh, and introduced to a character named Forrest Gump. The film followed the life of a boy growing up in the mid 20th century in, in America. And we got to watch this character, played by Tom Hanks, you can see me, see him beside me here, uh, kind of go through life. And he gave us a number of memorable sayings, and the first service really dropped the ball when I tried to get them to, you know, remember this so-called memorable saying. So I'm not going to put that on you, but he said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, right? Anyone else remember that, or was it just me and a couple of... Okay, there's a lot more hands here. Goodness. The movie went on to be one of the greatest successes for movies of its time. It grossed. It was number three behind E.T. and something else that I forget. Um, It eclipsed the $300 million mark, which in 1994 was a lot for a movie. And part of that was because the story drew us into the story of Forrest, didn't it? It engaged us in a coming-of-age story, and in many ways, it showed us how many seemingly insignificant events in the life of this character really all added up to something way bigger than the sum of their parts, right? The other thing that the movie did was bring in a really great soundtrack. Does anybody remember the music from the movie? Okay, well, a couple of good, a few, good. For me, who <clears throat> I was a little bit younger in 94, it brought to my ears and sort of uh, ushered in an introduction to a couple of different musical eras gone by. This two-CD collection that I can still picture on the seat next to me in my car as a late teenager, early 20-year-old, had tracks from Elvis and CCR and and Aretha Franklin and The Doors and Leonard Skinner, The Beach Boys, Fleetwood Mac, and just a fantastic collection of about 30 years of music. But there's also a song on the record written by Pete Seeger and the Birds, called Turn, Turn, Turn. And it's a catchy tune. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's enough to get in your mind and stick there for a long time. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a gentle song. It's not, it's not a bad thing if it's stuck in your head. It's, it's not as annoying as some other songs might be that, that are just there you can't get rid of, right? But it's a tune that sort of comforts its listeners, saying that no matter what you're going through right now, just hang on, because good times are around the corner. And all but six words from that song actually come from today's text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which, interestingly enough, uh, Wikipedia tells me that because of this, uh, Pete Seeger donates a portion of the royalties from this song to Israel because he's borrowed the text from their Bible, which is interesting. Again, I don't know, Wikipedia, take it for what it's worth. but. But the birds in the song, that's the band, the birds, the band, they don't quite capture what the teacher is trying to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, right? The song tells us, hang on, good times are coming, just around the corner, everything will turn, right? But the words in the poem that we're going to look at this morning in Ecclesiastes 3, they have a lot more of a kind of foreboding tone to them. Much like earlier chapters in Ecclesiastes, once, once again, there's this kind of dark cloud of, is this all that there is? hanging over the text? Where do we turn? How do we handle this tension that I would, I'm going to guess and suspect that every one of us feels of of either wanting good times to come or enjoying good times while we have them? And also, how how do we press through the hard things? Is that even possible? Can we even get through these things? Or is it, as Solomon has said a few times in this book, just a chasing or a shepherding the wind? Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, let me invite you to turn, turn, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 with me, and we'll see the teacher continue to investigate everything that is under heaven. Let me start reading uh, in verse 1. Read, there's an occasion for everything, a time for every activity under heaven. Now, once again, we see the teacher, we see Solomon limiting his search, his research, his inspection to things that are only under heaven his eyes are on the present world and he says that there is an occasion there is a season for every activity to take place under heaven so picture in our minds as as these words come through our, our ears and into our hearts the the seasons flowing from one to the next spring summer fall winter spring summer fall winter seasons just keep going and going And Solomon launches into this poem that describes all of these activities, but there's not an evaluation of anything on the list. He doesn't write this to say, this is good, this is bad, this is wise, this is foolish, this is righteous, this is sinful. This is much different than Proverbs, whereas they're both the same kind of genre of literature, they're both wisdom literature, but Proverbs tells us, here's what you should do. Solomon's just telling us, here's what I see. He doesn't tell us how to capture the good things on the list and avoid the bad. Just giving us an observation. The one thing we should say about this list is that it is not a checklist or a task list that everyone ought to do before they die. And you'll see why I say that in verse 3. But this is, a, a, a again, an observation and a collection of what humanity generally experiences in life and so we've got this poem this collection of 14 matching pairs of opposites that are meant to also include everything in between and so after almost every line you could say and everything in between and that would help us grasp what he's trying to do here it shows us the 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 complete reality of life on earth and it shows us the impermanent and mortal nature of life so Let me read this for us, and listen to how these pairs, these phrases, really do encompass all of life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is an occasion or a season for everything, a time for every activity under heaven. There's a time to give birth, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. There's a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. There's a time to search the time to count is lost. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to sow, A time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And I think everything's represented here, isn't it? I think we've got it all. I think Forrest might be onto something. This poem describes for us quite the box of chocolates, doesn't it? Yet, even here, there's this hint of inevitable sameness and monotony that comes with life under the sun. Time for this, time for that, time for this, time for that. On and on and on we go. We go through all these actions, we go through all these seasons, and nothing seems to really change. We're just here today and gone tomorrow. A generation goes and another replaces it. I suspect we can identify with, with really everything on this list. And he starts and says, there's, there's a time to give birth, a time to die. That, there's the bookends of our entire life, isn't it? The beginning and the end. Everything else on the list comes in between these two. And if we look at the world and this journey from birth to death and, and just life under the sun, man, there's really a kind of a heaviness and a weight this is we're reminded of just how fragile life is. We're reminded again of earlier in chapter one where he talked about the coming and going of generations. One one goes and another steps up to replace it. We're reminded of death itself and the nasty reality that, that in a fallen, sinful, post-Genesis 3 world that we live in, death is now a reality. We can look around and see that that sin has cracked the world, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We're, we're reminded of the, the, the proverb he gave us in chapter one fifteen, where he says the, the straight thing has been made crooked and we can't make it straight again. Something's not right. Next, a, a time to plant, a time to uproot. Every late spring in Canmore, we put some plants in the ground and seemingly just a few weeks later, the frost hits and we have to dig them all back up, whether they're done or not. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to heal. In this context, it might most naturally refer to, a, to an agricultural setting, to, to farm work. I will admit that uh, Naomi and I have watched almost every episode of Heartland on Netflix. And if you're familiar with the story, it takes place in southern Alberta. And it's a, a family on a ranch, right, dealing especially with horses. And usually the horses come to Amy, who's the miracle girl who, who fixes whatever's wrong with the horses and sends them on their way. Sometimes you can't fix the horse, right? And there's a, an episode, there's a scene where Jack, the grandfather, kind of the patriarch of the family, has to go take care of his horse. It's time to heal. heal. Time to kill. Uh, maybe for most of us, um, our relationship with pets might be a better understanding of this, right? There's a time to, to go to the vet and, and pay the cost and do whatever you have to do. And there's a time where we have to say goodbye, Remember, again, that these are descriptions of what's been seen, not prescriptions. We can't go flip through our calendar and say, okay, today is the day to go kill. It's not what we're doing here. There's a time to tear down, a time to build up. For evidence of that, all we have to do is look out the window here and see what used to be a motel in town is now a couple of holes in the ground. And something new will be there in months, presumably. Not that long. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Think of things like weddings and funerals. Think of uh, graduation ceremonies and grievings. We can look to King David as well, who who danced for joy uh, as the ark came into Jerusalem, but he wept bitterly at his son's illness. There's a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. For uh, those of us with little kids in our lives, that could be describing a day at the, the lake or the river, right? There's time to throw those things in. And there's, inevitably, there's a time to fill your pockets with rocks or get mom and dad to carry the rocks home for you. But more likely, the text here is referring to a, a wartime strategy of the day where you would throw stones into the enemies of your field so that they couldn't plant and harvest and, and, and be sustained by those fields during that time. But when peace came, he then gathered those stones so once again the land could be fruitful. We can read that in Second Kings three and Isaiah five. There's a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. I'm not sure that when Solomon wrote this, he looks three thousand years into the future and saw 2020 to 2022 and the kind of COVID social distancing reality, but it fits. Think of the the coming and goings of friendships, or relationships, some that maybe we had when we were younger that seemed like they, they'd go on forever. And then for whatever reason, a, a transition, a, you know, a racial, relational breakdown, whatever, those those tight groups now are gone. There's a time to search, a time to count as lost. I'm sure every one of you has something in your house that you're sure you put right here and you haven't been able to find it forever. Right. Think of the, the parables Jesus told in uh, Luke 15 of the lost coin, the lost sheep, even the lost son. Right? There's a time to search for things and there's a time to just accept they're not coming back. There's a time to accept that, that certain maybe clothing styles or sizes may never come back into our wardrobes. There's a time to keep and there's a time to throw away uh, parents of elementary school age kids, uh, Bentley, Avea, plug your ears for just a second. Let me speak a word of truth to you. There's a time to throw away some of that stuff that comes home. Or for parents who may or may s- not still have treasures of your 40 year old son in the crawl space uh, that he gave you maybe when he was in elementary school, Mom, there's a time to throw away, and it's going to be okay. No, don't give them back. This is what I'm trying to tell her. The boxes keep coming, you guys. I don't want them back. <clears throat> I love you, Mom. There's a time to tear and a time to sew. Uh, and this uh, is probably reminding us of the Jewish practice of, of tearing your clothes in times of grief and mourning or repentance. Uh, remember Genesis 31, when, when Jacob thought his son Joseph had been killed by an animal, what did he do? He tore his clothes in grief. We see that time and time again through the Bible. But when that time of mourning ended, the garment was re-sewn and re-worn. There's a time to be silent. There's a time to speak. I mean, this, this we can go a lot of ways with this one, can't we? Think of of Job's friends in Job 2, where we hear that Job has just been uh, you know, inundated by grief and loss and he's mourning and his friends come and we read at the end of chapter two that they came, they saw his grief, they saw all that he was going through and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights but they never spoke a word because they saw his suffering was so intense. Some days we just need to be with people. This can also be, I mean, Proverbs talks a lot about the right time to speak or to hold your tongue, to to confront a fool or to maybe hold back. Sometimes it means we, we confront someone about something, but other times we, we don't do that in purpose. Instead, we re- retreat to our, our own space, our own home, and we pray for them and call out for their, uh, their repentance or whatever it might be. I mean, this, this too can be really good relationship advice as well. Guys, typically this is one we need to hear. Not always. Sometimes our wives just want us to be quiet and give them a hug. Maybe it's just me. Sometimes they just want it to be quiet. We could maybe restate this one as there's a time for listening and there's a time for solving. That's the husband version of it, maybe, right? And then finally, there's a time for love, a time for hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Again, we're not advocating, the, the text isn't advocating war or pacifism, but it's describing the reality of the human experience. Everything we experience under the sun, it, it just seems to go from one season to the next. It seems ultimately futile or meaningless or, or it's vanity. It's like that vapor. It's trying to chase the wind or shepherd the wind because every activity on this list seems to cancel one another out. One writer says this, and on this list we've got 14 pluses and 14 minuses. And if you know your math, 14 positive plus 14 negative equals zero. We're left with nothing. It all adds up to nothing. Every birth ends in death. Every planting ends in harvest. Every building eventually gets torn down. Every celebration turns to grief. Nothing is gained under the sun. And Solomon drives home this point with the beginning of his comment on the poem, re-asking kind of that gut-punch question we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, what does the worker gain? What does the worker profit from all his or her struggles or toils or effort? He's saying, at the end of the day, When we make that journey from life to death, when we're after death, what have we gained under the sun with everything we've done? And the answer is again, nothing. He continues and says, I've seen the task or I've I've seen the burden that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. And once again, he's he's starting to get us into some Genesis three type language here. Our work and our activity wasn't meant to be frustrating. It wasn't meant to be a toil. It wasn't meant to be a burden but they are now because of sin in the world. But there's more to this burden. Yes, we we wrestle with the brokenness of this world. We wrestle with the sin in this world, but this burden he's talking about here starts to unfold for us in verse 11, which might be the most famous and and most oft-quoted verse in the whole book. And it starts like this. He says that he, that the God has made everything beautiful, or some translations say everything appropriate in its time. Now, He's just gone from this poem where we saw the word time 29 times, and it's repeated again and again, describing the monotony of life, but now it's tied to God. God doing a creative work, keeping everything going and keeping everything beautiful. See, under the sun, it seems like time just soldiers on without a care for anyone or anything. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made everything beautiful in its time. God has an appropriate time for everything. It's all part of his bigger plan. Then we continue that verse and read that he, that God, again, he has also put eternity in their hearts. This contrasts the time from the poem, that, that fleeting thing, that, that vanity that, you know, it's, it's trying to catch the, catch the smoke, the breath of air and the cold that you're trying to grab and put back into a box or something. Now we're talking about eternity. This is forever. Time comes and goes, but eternity is forever. And what he's saying here is that every one of us inside, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter what our worldview or understanding of the world is, every one of us somewhere inside of us knows that there's got to be more than all we see under the sun. There has to be. Every one of us, there's this built-in desire for transcendence that we feel that the world isn't enough. This, this can't be it. It's put eternity in our hearts there's one final phrase in this verse that's usually skipped over when we quote it because it's not quite as nice and bumper sticker friendly as the other parts, but it really helps us start to understand this tension within us. It says, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. It's put a turning on our hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done God has made and is making everything beautiful in his time. And we have this inkling of eternity within us, but we, and, and this is the key to the text, we just cannot find out all that God is doing or has been doing or will do. We can't figure it out. And this is a massive theme in Ecclesiastes. We just can't know. We just can't see all that God is up to. We, the ones who are created, we cannot fathom what the Creator has in mind. Now, absolutely, we want to know. We feel like we deserve to know. Has anyone ever prayed some prayer like, God, just give me the answer. Just open the blinds. Let me see what's going on. I deserve to know because I'm going through this, right? How, how, I'll speak for myself, how arrogant a prayer that is. The Creator, or the creation telling the Creator what to do. The reality is we can't handle it. There's another movie quote there too, I'm sure. I can't handle the truth. And it's not like God is being malevolent. It's not like God is being mean-spirited. It's not like God is being secretive, intentionally hiding things from it. He just knows that we can't handle it. He knows our limits better than we do. And if God knows those limits, and he's the one who made all of it, and he's the one that continues to make everything beautiful in its time, then we can trust him. And that, I think, is really the crux of verse 11 and how this verse fits with the futility of life mentioned earlier in that poem. See, we perceive, we understand that there's more, and we long for better things than just this life, but we can't see the full picture. And so we have to lean on God. We can't. You and I, we're stuck somewhere in between the time of the poem and the eternity of God. And so we need to trust God to work out his plan. That's the tension that we see the teacher wrestling with in this text. That's the tension that that we all feel and that that there's something more going on. We all want our lives to matter. We all uh, can go around and look to all sorts of different kinds of pleasures or experiences or relationships or possessions to try to make sense of the world around us. But we've got to understand that there was a divine plan set in motion at the beginning. And there's a sovereign God who watches over all things and will see that everything happens in its time. And all the frustration that you and I find under the sun, all the monotony, all the endless repetition, that should direct us to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond the sun. And that's where we'll find God. The uneasiness in our hearts can only be satisfied by God himself. Augustine famously opened his confession, saying, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So how do, how do we do this? How do we go through life knowing that there's more? Let me suggest that as soon as we recognize and realize that we can't see it all, that we, that we can't know it all, but that we can trust God, then we rest in that. There's peace in that. There's hope in that. Look at verse 12. The writer says, I know that there is nothing better for them, for humanity, than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It's also the gift of God that when everyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all, all his efforts. Now, we've said this before in past weeks, and we'll say it again. This is not just a call to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is not a a pessimistic look at life. This is a a, a real look at life. You and I can't change the future. We can't change the past. God's in charge of that. So enjoy the gifts he's given us. Now, Paul talks about this. I think it's in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. right? Whatever you do, Do it for the glory of God. That's what we're talking about here. And everything that we have, everything that we do is a gift from God. Imagine the difference your perspective on life looks when every moment you see is a gift from God, as opposed to just a soldiering through the seasons. And that morning coffee, that breakfast, the the walk down the street, the, the breath, being able to gather together. And what a gift! Our, our time is short, and we're here one minute and gone the next. So eat, drink, and enjoy your work, because these are all gifts from God. And when we live in the reality that we are the created and not the creator, the things, these things that were meant to be gifts, the food, the drink, the pleasures, the experiences, all these things that we can easily turn into gods, they start to fall into their rightful place too. Now the con- teacher concludes that everything God does will last forever, but look at the confidence in those words in verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's, that's a lot different than the fleeting futility of our own lives under the sun, isn't it? And my stuff's coming and going, and, and I, I'm not aging any slower, and my kids aren't growing up any slower. All the things, time's going, but everything God does will last he continues, there's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him or will fear him. Amen. Really, this is the key to this text. This is the key to Ecclesiastes. In all of our seasons, in all of our comings and goings, in every moment of life, we are meant to be giving God awe, fearing him, recognizing who we are and who he is. Whenever we feel stuck in that kind of hamster wheel of the seasons in the poem, just remember that we're a much, we're, we're a small part in a much bigger story. Think about, have you ever seen a, 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 like a giant hanging tapestry of just a, a, a beautiful work of art? But flip it over and look at the back, and then kind of zoom in on maybe just a couple square inches. And you look at that, and it's just kind of the chaos of, of threads going everywhere, and it doesn't make sense. Again, flip it and step back and have a look. You can see the bigger picture, right? We're that chaos of threads. Think about a uh, stained glass mosaic. There's a nice yellow picture about to come up here. Think about one piece of glass. That's you and I. I've blown the picture up so much that it's even all pixelated, right? Just one tiny little bit. But put that chunk of glass in the hands of a master and let him do what he wants to do. Man, we can be... You're part of a masterpiece. We, we can't see, my little chunk of yellow glass can't see this on my own. Or think about a puzzle. Over the last, you know, few months or whenever, I can't remember the last time we did, we, we've dumped puzzles on the table and we've built them as a family, right? Some of these puzzles are a thousand pieces and you flip them over and they're all green who cares about a little green piece? But you take the time, you fiddle these things together, you get it together, and masterpiece, picture at the end, right? We find um, a similar passage to this one in the New Testament as well, where Paul writes for us in Romans chapter 8, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. We love to quote that verse. That's another good one. Let's put that on the bumper sticker. Let me have that on a coffee. That's great. I love that. But we often stop reading right there because that's, I mean, that's nice, warm, and fuzzy. But in the very next verse, in 29, Paul assures us that we will experience famine, peril, nakedness, and other pain. We are going to experience all sorts of negative things in this life, but this life is not all there is. God will use all of these things to conform and transform us into the image of His Son. Both Solomon and Paul call us to be confident that God's plan is good. God knows all of your days. He is sovereign over the details and in control of the seasons. He mixes the good with the bad, the joys and the pains, but he does so to make something beautiful. We can't always see that. And I know, I know that we can't always see that. How else can we keep trusting that God will make everything beautiful in its time? Well, we can look back about 2,000 years in history and we can see that at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus, to be the visible image of an invisible God, to become flesh and blood and dwell among us, to move into the neighborhood, to be tempted in every way as we are, yet remain sinless, to model for us how to be human, to show us what flourishing really looks like, to be God's anointed chosen one. He came to preach the good news to the poor, to release the captive, to bring sight to the blind and freedom for the captive, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of heaven, to give up his life for us while we were yet sinners. He came to die a criminal's death on a Roman cross and to be buried in a borrowed grave but to rise again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death itself so that we can be brought back into relationship with God, that relationship that our hearts long for. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's pretty good. Listen, life might be a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Some of them are just right, and some of them, like the fruit-filled ones, are just like,
1: why are these here?
0: But you know what? This life is going to be made beautiful in its time because it's not about me. It's not about you. God will do the work. God will make everything beautiful in its time. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. I pray that um, these verses and and that Ecclesiastes, as we continue to journey through it, would be one that helps us recognize our own place in the world, our own status, our own position. I pray that even even now, as we're praying together, as we're here in this room, that that you would speak to us that you would uh, reveal in our hearts some of those things that we've been pursuing that are under the sun that are supposed to be gifts from you, but we're chasing after them looking for meaning and purpose and value and identity. Show us those things. Show me those things. And Jesus, forgive me when I've gone after something you've given to me as a gift and, and made that a little God, a little idol in my life. Forgive me for that. Jesus, help me to reorient my disordered desires, that you would be the top of the list, that I would be grateful for every breath, for every bite, for every conversation, for every step. Help us to focus our eyes and turn our eyes past the sun to you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor Sean, for the message. Would you stand me in your worship again? Sing a couple more songs before you end service. Christ, oh. One day when heaven is filled with its praises one day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin and 12th among men my example is he one day daylight is mounting one day, they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering, anguish, despised, and rejected. Bearing our sins, my Redeemer is he. The hands that a nation stretched down on a tree took the nails from me cause living, He loves me Dying, He saves me Buried, He carried My sins far away Rising, He justified Freely forever Oh glorious day! one day the grave can conceal him no longer one day the stone rolled away from the door It's any rose over that he had conquered is ascended my lord evermore death cannot hold him grave cannot keep him from rising again living he loved me dying he saves me the he carried my sins far away and rising he justified freely forever one day is coming oh glorious day no glorious day Glories will shine. A wonderful day, my beloved one bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. Cause living, He loved me. Dying, He saves me. buried He carried my sits far away. Rising, justified, freely forever. One day is coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day.
0: wrap up our time together. Let me uh, wrap up with our benediction. This comes from Ephesians chapter three, and and one of the the focuses we want to have this season, this year, is is on our identity in Christ, on who we are, and and, and what that looks like, and what that means. So uh, let me pray this prayer of Paul over us. He writes to the church, I pray that from His glorious unlimited resources. He will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. And then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust Him. And your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep His love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And now all glory to God, who is able, through the mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than all we might ask or imagine. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. God bless you. We'll see you again really soon.